See, the Bible speaks of the tongue and the power of the tongue to be able to heal, to encourage, to edify, to teach, to support, to exhort, to sing, to pray, and to praise. But it also speaks of the power of the tongue to corrupt, to pervert, to flatter, to gossip, to blaspheme, to complain, to swear, to seduce, to destroy, to lead astray. And that's just for starters. Hello, and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We are in a study in the book of James, and today Pastor Carl begins in chapter 3, where we will see that the tongue and the heart are directly connected. Let's join Pastor Carl to find out why. I want to invite you this morning to take your Bible and turn to the letter of James, chapter 3. If you are here for the first time, we've been working our way chapter by chapter and verse by verse through this little letter. It's just 108 verses. You know, when I was in the first grade, I was told I had a speech impediment. I had a tongue thrust. And so once a week, I was pulled out of class, and my speech therapist, Mrs. Cox, would help me to articulate different words. I'm sure she never dreamed that I would be a preacher someday, and I'm sure I never dreamed I would be a preacher. I couldn't have even told you what a preacher was in that day. But the truth is, we all have a speech impediment, and it's called sin, and nowhere is it seen more acutely than on our tongues. And so it's no surprise to us that as James is dealing with the subject of spiritual maturity, that he addresses the issue of the tongue. If you know these verses that we're about to study this morning, they're very convicting. And of course, we are reminded this morning that this little piece of tongue, it's only about two ounces in weight, about four inches long. On a given day, we usually speak about 12,000 sentences, 50,000 words. If you were to take it and write it into a little book, it would comprise about a 150-page paperback. In fact, if the words that you spoke or maybe wrote this week on the internet and social media were published, how pleased would you be for people to read it? See, the Bible speaks of the tongue and the power of the tongue to be able to heal, to encourage, to edify, to teach, to support, to exhort, to sing, to pray, and to praise. But it also speaks of the power of the tongue to corrupt, to pervert, to flatter, to gossip, to blaspheme, to complain to swear, to seduce, to destroy, to lead astray. And that's just for starters. In fact, the very first temptation was a temptation that came from words from the devil himself. The very first sin after the fall were evil spoken words. God, it wasn't me. It was the woman. He blamed God that you gave me. So the Bible teaches very clearly that the tongue and the heart are directly connected Solomon said, a wise man's heart guides his mouth. Jesus taught that the tongue is just the messenger that delivers the mail, mail out of the heart. And that's what we're going to look at. It sounds like you have found it. If you don't have a Bible, you need one. This is a Bible teaching church. And you'll promise, I promise you'll get 50% more out of any sermon I preach if you have a Bible on your lap. Don't rely on your neighbor. Listen, you don't eat off of your neighbor's plate at home. You need your own Bible to feed on God's Word this morning. James chapter 3, beginning now in verse 1. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, 
knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Now, if we put the bits into the horses' mouths so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members is that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of life and is set on fire by hell. For every species of beasts and birds of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives or a vine produce figs? Nor can salt water produce fresh. When I was a boy and if I felt sick, my mother would say, stick out your tongue. And of course she did that because sticking out my tongue could tell something about the condition of the body. In the same way, James wants us to understand that the tongue tells a great deal about the condition of our souls. And interestingly, this particular apostle has more to say about the tongue than any other apostle in all of the New Testament. Fifteen percent of this epistle is dedicated to the tongue. And if you've read this letter, and some of you are trying to read it once a week, it takes less than 15 minutes the subject of the tongue is not peripheral to his thinking. It's central. It's a big part of what he has to tell us. In fact, in addition to this major portion of Scripture, on five different occasions in this letter, he speaks to the subject of the tongue. We studied in chapter 1 and verse 19. This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak and slow to anger. Then at the conclusion of chapter 1, he writes in verse 26, if anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. He reminds us in chapter 2 and verse 12, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. Then in chapter 4, in verse 11, he writes, do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. And then finally, in chapter 5 and in verse 12, he warns, But above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes, and your no be no, so that you may not fall under judgment. And so the tongue is a major emphasis in this letter. 
Just to remind you of the context of where we are, as you can see on this chart, you will remember that the book of James divides into three major sections. Chapter 1, which we have focused on, deals with the development of our faith. Chapters 2 and 3 deal with the distortion of our faith. And we saw how our faith can be distorted via our testimony, today with our tongue, and thirdly, he will cover things that we should avoid. So this section is kind of a spirituality check. He ended chapter 1 with saying, if someone thinks that he is religious, if someone thinks that he is really spiritual, but is unable to control his tongue, then he's not spiritual at all. Now, we tend to measure spirituality in other ways. How often do I go to church? How many Bible studies do I attend? How much theological knowledge have I amassed? But James says the real litmus test of whether or not we are spiritual is how we use our tongue. I can identify with the Samaritan woman that Christ encountered, if you remember, in John chapter 4. He offered her a drink by which she would never thirst. And then he said to her, go and call your husband. And Jesus was told, well, I have no husband. And then he said to her, you have correctly said I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. This you have truly said. To which she responded, if you remember, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people, you Jewish people, say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. The moment it got somewhat uncomfortable for her, what does she do? She changes the subject. She begins to discuss the location of worship. She takes the conversation into some theological issue, and I can identify with her. And when a pastor begins to speak on a tongue, he's not just teaching, he's meddling. And James is very pointed and very practical. Now, please don't assume that this apostle is a prophet of silence because he's not. Because like Jesus, he will argue you can sin just as much by your silence as you can by your speech. I mean, which one of us have not had some clear open door of opportunity to share Christ with an unbeliever, and all of a sudden we have a case of lockjaw? So James is not promoting silence. What he is promoting is control. Now, if you're taking notes, there's a note-taking outline. If you're online, there's a place to print it out. If you're not sure, there's some people monitoring our various sites. And by the way, for your information, we broadcast at communitybiblechurch.us. We broadcast through YouTube, we broadcast through Sermon Audio, through Roku, through Apple, five different places you can pick up the broadcast, but on our website, you can print out the outline. So let's begin with the influence of the tongue in verses 1 through 5. Notice how he launches directly into the subject here in verse 1. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren knowing that as such, we will incur a stricter judgment. Now, let me share just a little bit of historical background here. This noun for teacher, didaskalos, gives us our English adjective didactic. So when we speak of someone who's didactic, we're describing someone who's teaching or instructing another. 
And this word teacher comes out of a Jewish context. Remember, he is writing largely to Jewish people. This is one of the earliest books in the New Testament. And the opening verse reminds us he's speaking to the 12 tribes who've been scattered. And in the Jewish culture, the teacher was the single most highly respected person in the entire culture. In fact, the Jew esteemed a teacher greater than his own parents because while his parents might be able to offer him physical life, a teacher rightly dividing the word of truth could offer him spiritual life. And so they placed a high priority in this office of teaching. It was huge in the synagogue, and when the church was formed, people were lining up to want to become teachers. And James says, in this kind of a cultural setting, let not many of you become teachers, my brethren. In other words, don't be so quick to become a teacher. And notice he says, my brethren, because he's speaking to believers, those who've been born again through faith in Christ. Now, when we read this negative command, it forces us to ask a critical question. How do you reconcile this negative command with what the writer of the Hebrews says, that we all ought to become teachers, and what Paul says in reference to spiritual gifts? The day God saved you, he gave you a spiritual gift. There's 20 spiritual gifts listed in the New Testament, and every Christian has at least one. And one of those spiritual gifts is the gift of teaching, and another gift is the gift of pastor-teacher, two distinct gifts. One is teaching, the other is pastor-slash-teacher, so to speak. And by the way, you don't pray about what spiritual gift you get, because you and I have nothing to do with it. God determines what gift he gives you, and he places each one of us in a particular function in the body of Christ because he needs a wide variety of gifts. And by the way, as you grow in Christ, as you mature in Christ, that particular gift that you did not have prior to conversion will begin to show itself and manifest itself. So, for instance, in 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 11, it says, but one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. Four different times in the New Testament, it is affirmed and taught that God gives the gifts as he chooses as he wills. So none of us, again, have any say. And God expects you to use your spiritual gift. There's coming a time when God will ask you how you did with your spiritual gift. He won't take as an answer, well, I didn't even know there were spiritual gifts, or I didn't know that I had one. And if you're not sure, you might want to go to searchthescriptures.org. There's 128 questionnaire that I have developed. I did my doctoral dissertation on the subject of spiritual gifts, and I think that test might be a starter for some of us, at least if we've grown a little bit. But Peter says in 1 Peter 4, as each one of us has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. So if you teach a ladies' Bible study, or you teach a men's study, or an ABF, or you teach an Awana, then you should use that gift. Don't stop. In fact, stewardship implies accountability. And of course, uh, God tells us in Romans 14 and verse 12, so then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. 
So knowing that when he says, let not many of you become teachers, he's not saying if God has given you the gift of teaching or pastor teacher that you are to bury that gift. In addition to the gift of teaching, there's a general responsibility that every Christian has to teach. And so the writer to the Hebrews says this in the fifth chapter. For though by this time you, and you throughout this verse is plural in Southern English, y'all, for by this time you, plural, ought to be teachers, you, plural, have need, again, for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. I've underlined that in my Bible, this second person plural pronoun. You, by this time, ought to have been teachers. In other words, he is saying you ought to have grown up enough in Christ such that if an unbeliever asks you a basic question, you ought to be able to respond, or a new Christian asks you a basic question, you ought to be able to point him to the Scripture and answer basic questions. That's a general responsibility. It's an aspect of maturity that God wants to build into each of our lives. But above and beyond those who've been gifted by God at conversion to teach, above and beyond the common responsibility that we all have, there's also the office of teaching in the New Testament that can be held by an elder or sometimes what we call a pastor or sometimes in the Old English, a bishop. Some people are called and gifted by God to use their gift of teaching in a formal way to serve in the office. Now, again, in 1 Timothy, he makes the distinction between the fact that while an elder ought to be able to teach, not all elders are called to serve in the office of teaching. An elder, he says in 1 Timothy 3, 2, must be able to teach. In Titus 1 and verse 9, he says an elder must be able to exhort in sound doctrine. Why? Because an elder has to have reached a certain degree of maturity to be able to shepherd the flock of God. But while an elder must be mature and knowledgeable, it doesn't necessarily mean that he is to serve in the official office of teaching. And so, for instance, Jesus spoke of the fact that the worker is worthy of his support. The Apostle Paul said it this way in 1 Corinthians 9, so also the Lord directed that those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. Or Paul will say later in 1 Timothy 5, the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. So those elders worthy of double honor serve in the teaching office of the New Testament. And he's giving them a warning. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren. Just because a man might have the gift of pastor teacher, and by the way, a woman can have the gift of pastor teacher to serve women, never to fill the office of pastor in the New Testament church. That's a clear violation of Scripture, and I don't care what the people are saying that it's okay for a woman to be a pastor, or a woman can teach in a mixed audience, a Sunday school class, or a woman under her pastor's authority can preach on Sunday morning. No pastor has authority to give you authority that God expressly forbids. And God says that a woman should not teach or exercise authority over a man. And in the context, he's dealing with someone who serves as a pastor, not because he's down on women, but because he's up on another role that they are to live out. 
And that is the high and holy role of making the next generation of preachers and evangelists and those who live for Christ as they raise their children well in their home. And so know that you will incur a stricter judgment. I take that admonition very, very seriously. So I spend a lot of time in the scripture before I stand behind this pulpit because there's coming a judgment that I will face as a Christian that will be stricter for me as a pastor than it will be for you. And the judgment, of course, is not a judgment of salvation. It's a judgment of service. If you're listening today, understand that the judgment to determine whether or not you go to heaven or hell is settled ever before you take your last breath. The moment you die, you have already destined yourself for either heaven or hell. Jesus said the Son of Man did not come into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through him. He who does not believe in him is judged already. Why? Because we're guilty. We're fallen. He didn't come with a message of condemnation. But there is a judgment saved people will face. It's called the Bema Seed. It's called the Judgment Seed of Christ. It's the judgment of the just. It takes place in heaven. You're saved by grace, not by works. But the grace that saves should work. And the grace that saves you should teach you to live holy and righteously. And someday you will stand eyeball to eyeball with Jesus Christ. And as a believer... He will determine your reward. And that reward for pastors is predicated on how faithful they were to this office. And let me give you three reasons why a pastor will indeed encompass a stricter judgment. First and foremost, because they are not to teach their opinion, they are to teach the Word of God. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 4. He says to young Timothy, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. And then he warned quickly, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. Ladies and gentlemen, that time has come. I spoke with a pastor this week and people were on his case for preaching a 45-minute sermon. I'm telling you, those folks wouldn't like this church. (laughs) But you see, they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn turn aside to myths. But you, Sude, I have those two words that were written on my study for some 20 words, 20 years, two Greek words, Sude. But you, but you, Timothy, as a pastor, but you... Be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. So the key element of shepherding the flock of God is feeding the flock of God. And so when a pastor does that faithfully, Peter says, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So first, there comes accountability with teaching and that we are not to give our opinions. We are to preach the truth. Jesus said in Luke 12, 48, for everyone who has been given much, much will be required into whom they entrusted much of him. They will ask all the more. And so a teacher will be required all the more of much. 
And so a pastor who earns his living through preaching the word of God has great accountability. I am to come and I am to present to you a well-prepared spiritual meal because I have more time to prepare that meal than you would. And if I come and it's just kind of a lackadaisical, off the cuff, whatever I want to say that morning, God will be displeased. So with increased blessing comes increased influence. With increased responsibility comes increased accountability. So James is saying, oh, you want to be a pastor? You want to be a teacher? You want to serve that office? Have you considered the responsibility? Have you considered that you will incur a stricter judgment? And knowing that I will incur such a judgment, I take it seriously. Remember the apostles in Acts 6? By the way, every apostle is a pastor-teacher. Not every pastor-teacher is an apostle. In fact, there are no apostles today, contrary to Roman Catholic doctrine. To have been an apostle, you had to have seen the risen Christ, been personally selected by him. And Paul says, if those things are true, then you'll do the signs, wonders, and miracles that only an apostle can do, proving that God had called you and chosen you. In, in Acts 6, he says, it's not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. There was a real need, if you remember Acts 6. But we, we apostles, will devote ourselves to what? To prayer and to the ministry of the word. Listen, there's a lot of meetings and gatherings that people want me to come to, and they want me to come to them because their last pastor came to them, and they think that that's what I should do. I did a funeral not that long ago, and one of the relatives, not a member of the church, said, well, why didn't you come to the house? I said, I would have loved to have been at the house, but I couldn't be at the house. And I said, there are certain things that God has called me to do in terms of preaching the word and evangelizing the lost. And by the way, you're a relative because I was out one night sharing the gospel and not at home with my family came to faith in Jesus Christ. So there are things that sometimes congregations expect a pastor to do that God does not call them to do. But there's another reason given here in the immediate context of James 3 as to why we should not seek the office of teacher, knowing that we will incur a stricter judgment. Contextually, it's because he's dealing, if you remember, with the subject of the tongue. And teachers use their tongues more. I preach an average of 750 words a minute with gusts up to 1,000. I use my tongue a lot. Teachers deal with words and concepts and ideas and doctrines and influence. And, and they shape the lives of people when they hear what they have to say, for good or for bad. And so if the tongue is not bridled, it can do great damage or it can do great good. You see, to sin with the tongue either all by yourself or with two or three people is one thing. But to sin with the tongue in front of a whole congregation is far worse. And so he's saying, listen, don't make a mad rush for the pulpit because there's a stricter judgment. The chief shepherd is coming, and you are going to have to give an account. And he will determine based on the accuracy of what we taught, whether it was beneficial or not, how he will reward us. As Pastor Carl points out to us, if someone thinks that they are spiritual, but they are unable to control their tongue, they are not spiritual at all. 
The real litmus test on whether or not we are spiritual is how we choose to use our tongue. You can support the ministry of Search the Scriptures by calling or you can give online at searchthescriptures.org. Your generous donation plays a role in providing biblical teaching and spreading the gospel. Please join us tomorrow as Pastor Carl continues his series on James. We hope to see you then as we continue to search the scriptures.